On May 11th, 1996, Domingo Pacheco had a major problem on his hands. He was on a tight schedule to catch his plane out of Miami. And when he, but when he was driving down the Palomero Freeway, he had a blowout in the back left tire. He spent more than an hour in the hot Florida heat changing the tire, sweating profusely, and he realized he had missed his flight. As he was thinking about that and the sorrow that was there and the frustration that was there, why of all times would this tire go flat? He gets a call from his mom on his portable phone. Her words rang in his ear. Turn on your radio and thank God. The plane that you were supposed to be on crashed into the Everglades. Domingo Pacheco had been aboard, would have been aboard Value Jet Flight 592. Except for the flat tire. In this world, we live in a fallen world and there's lots of things that happen to us and things that are bad that happen to us. In this situation with Domingo, what appeared to be a bad thing, a flat tire, ended up being a life-saving event in his life. And this morning, what I want us to look at is the fact that as Joseph went through his life, he faced some very bad things. Some sinful things that happened in his life from other people. And yet, God was able to turn what was evil into something good. Let's look at the bad events in Joseph's life that brought him to the place of being prime minister of Egypt. First, there was the favoritism of Jacob. And then, depending how you want to read the scripture, some people view Joseph as being kind of a spoiled, favored son. But we see the jealousy of his brothers. We see the betrayal of his brothers. We see the human trafficking of Joseph's brothers. We see the deception of Joseph's brothers as they talk to their father, Jacob. We see the sexual harassment of Potiphar's wife. We see the injustice um, of this event in which she bears false witness and deception. We see the injustice of Potiphar himself. We see the wrongdoing of Pharaoh's servants, the cupbearer and the bread and the baker. We see the anger of Pharaoh. We see the forgetfulness of the cupbearer. We see a famine orchestrated by God to bring Joseph to the place that God had called him to. This morning, I want to look at the fact that Joseph carried out God's purpose for his life because he trusted God's good sovereignty and entrusted his brothers to God's judgment. If we turn to Genesis 50, Joseph makes a short statement that is rich with truth for us to hold on to. We see here in Genesis 50, 20 that his brothers are now fearful because his fathers died. 
And they're really believing that the only reason Joseph hasn't taken care of them up to this point is because he feared his father and wanted to honor his father. And now with Jacob's death, they're terrified. And they come up with a story about how Jacob had told them to tell Joseph to treat them with care and love. We see them as they fall down before Joseph and as they claim to be his servants. And then Joseph unpacks a very important statement, verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph had a vision through all that he had gone through that helped him to navigate through all the trials that his brothers had thrown in his path. And he understood and he had his eyes on the God who was with him. The God who was good. The God who was powerful. The God who did things that he didn't understand. But throughout his life, he walked with this vision of God that carried him through the purpose God had for his life. We're going to look at three points today in this whole aspect of Joseph running his life for God, running his course, and the trust he had in God's good, goodness and sovereignty. First point is, don't be surprised when people do evil to you for their own sinful purposes. As we saw back in Genesis 37, Joseph was shocked that his brothers would take his robe, throw him in a pit, talking about killing him and finally sending him off as a slave into Egypt. This completely caught Joseph by surprise. He had these dreams of greatness. He had the favor of his father. And what else, what could go wrong in his life? A lot of us as Christians have a false view of what we've signed on for. A lot of us believe if we trust Jesus... He's going to level out all the rough paths. He's going to straighten all the, the curvy roads. And he's going to give us a blessed life now. Now, we would never sometimes articulate that, but it's sitting in the back of our mind. And much of the gospel that's preached today is Jesus is going to take you to heaven and he's going to give you a great life now. Joseph, I submit to you, was not ready for the life that was coming his direction. Most of us are not ready and have not been ready for what we faced in our life. Can I get an amen on that? All kinds of surprises and twists and turns down the road of life that we were not expecting. And sometimes from people who are very close to us. Family, friends. Work associates. And we've been caught by surprise. So the first point, if you're going to run the kingdom race for God, is don't be surprised when people do evil to you for their own sinful purposes. 
Back in high school, we were getting to the end of my senior year. We had one more key game to play against a very strong opponent. And the coach had the scouting report. And so, during practice all week long, the first string players got beat up by the second string players. He called them quietly to the side and said, this is what I want you to do to them. I want you to, I want you to hit them. I want you to foul them. I want you to rough them up. I want you to say stuff to them to try to get them upset. I want you to do everything you can to frustrate them. And then he even instituted a drill where he had this big bag. And you'd come in for a shot and he'd just, he would just hit you with it. What was he trying to do? He was trying to prepare us that we went into this, this team's gym. It was going to be a different game. And they would do whatever it took to win that game, including stooping to levels and doing things that are not part of the game. And we went into that game and sure enough, that's what we faced. But because we were prepared for it, we weren't caught off guard. Are you prepared for the things that are going to come across your path? Jesus has tried to warn us. Jesus has tried to prepare us for what it means to run the kingdom race. In 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What's Peter saying? Be prepared. Be prepared for people who will do evil against you because of who you are in Christ. Be prepared for it. It's not a matter of if it's going to come. It's a matter of when it's going to come. Don't be surprised. The disciples were surprised. When they first signed on with Jesus, all they could think about was who's going to be on the left hand and the right hand of Jesus and how Jesus was going to enter and bring in his kingdom to Israel. They didn't read the fine print at the bottom of the page that said, if you're my followers, you'll suffer as I suffer. John 16, 33, the night that Jesus is betrayed. This is what he says to them. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the same night in which Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him. And they're all going to deny him. And one's going to betray them. And Peter confidently says that's not going to happen. Peter needed to hear his words. We need to hear his words. Jesus says, in me, you'll have peace. So when the unexpected trial comes, 
when the unexpected evil comes into your life, if you're anchored in Jesus, in the midst of all of that, there's peace. May I submit to you that Joseph, I'm sure, had to fight for peace at times when he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife, when he was thrown in prison, when he was sold into slavery. But somewhere in that, somewhere in that turmoil, he got a hold of God. And that gave him the strength he needed. In this congregation, I don't know all that goes on. I know some of what goes on. And some of us are in some trials that are long and drawn out. Jesus is saying, listen, in this world you're going to have tribulation. But with me there's peace. John 15, 18. In case the disciples didn't get the message, he says... If the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. When Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, he's letting you know that when you identify with him, you are now on the hated list. And people for all various and sundry reasons will find ways to hate you because of Christ. Now we are kind of in a little bubble in the U.S. regarding that. But I can hear the air slowly moving out of the bubble. And around the world, there are brothers and sisters dying daily simply because they're Christian. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He tells us in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted For righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. This is the Sermon on the Mount. All his disciples had a front row seat. I'm sure they were amening all the way through it. Not knowing what this meant. That you would be blessed when you're persecuted. So don't be surprised when people do evil to you for their own purposes and because you know Christ. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be thrown off balance. Now, can I tell you this? You probably will be for a few minutes, for a few days, for a few weeks, depending what comes your way. But know that there's a steady rock to hang on to, and that is Christ. Secondly, remember... It's not your place to take revenge. But they did that to me. Mm -hmm. And it hurt. And it was painful. 
And we've had to suffer through this for a long time. Yes. And all I want to do is get even. Understood? And Jesus says, through the Apostle Paul, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In this race that you're running, you don't have the energy to get even. You don't have that. You have the grace to run the race. And sometimes when things happen to us, we can spend an awful lot of energy. Some of us can spend a lifetime of energy in bitterness and anger and hatred for what's happened to us because it's just not right. What does Joseph tell his brothers? He says, am I in the place of God? That's a great question. Now, looking at the story, it looks like he's pretty close to being in the place of God, doesn't it? He is the prime minister of Egypt. The only person he has to answer to is Pharaoh. No one raises a hand or does anything in all of Egypt without him. The only food supply in that region is directed and controlled by him. He is as sovereign as you can get in the, in the earth. And the brothers have a good reason to be concerned about what might happen to them. Because they remember his cries for help. They remembered their wickedness, their evil toward him. They remember turning a deaf ear as the caravan went down the road to Egypt. And yet, notice what Joseph's position is. My position is not to be the judge. There is one who is the judge. And I'm going to let him be the judge. That takes a huge load off our shoulders, doesn't it? When we know he's the judge. And we don't try to make everything right that went wrong. I'm not to say there's not times we don't, we don't deal with people who are evil. That we don't confront people in their evil. That we don't try to do certain things that the Bible tells us we should do to stop people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who do evil. But there's some times in life where you just can't do anything. You don't have the means to do anything. You don't have the way to do anything. And so we need to rest on the fact that God is judge. That should have been terrifying to the brothers. Not that, oh, Joseph's not a judge, but God is judge. He directed their attention back to God. God is the one who will judge. That's not what I'm here for. I have a different purpose. My purpose is to bring salvation to my family. In the basketball game, the goal of the players was to do something serious enough to you that you would lash out at them. Either throw a punch or throw an elbow or do something to get yourself disqualified. That's how you play the game 
especially if you seem to be the underdog, is we have to resort to different measures. So if we can get this person to lose their cool. So if our key players on our team would lose their cool, they would either get in foul trouble or they would be removed from the game and the game would be turned. Do not be disrailed in your Christian race by seeking revenge. Leave it to God. Some of us here may have situations in our life that have been painful for years. And we're still trying to figure out a way to get that right or to, to get even. And, and so, and we've just harbored that. We've become so focused on that. Joseph gives us an example. Let it go. Trust him with God. Run the race. We see this with David. Here's David. Anointed to be king. You would think that means I'm going to be king in a few days, right? No, it didn't mean that. It means there's a guy named Saul who was still king. And David stood up against Goliath and slew Goliath. And you would think that Saul would have been greatly appreciative of that great act of sacrifice. But the Bible said Saul, as he heard the young ladies sing the song, Saul has conquered his thousands and David his ten thousands, he got jealous. He got very jealous. To the point one day David's having dinner at Saul's house and all of a sudden a javelin comes flying across the room and almost pins him against the wall. That's important to know that if you see that happen, you need to leave that's a hint things aren't going well so David had and David spent his life hiding in the wilderness for years waiting for God to do something with Saul in 1 Samuel 24 it's interesting in four in three different chapters 24 25 26 David has a chance to take revenge In 24, if you remember, David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul comes in to relieve himself. And David reaches out his sword and cuts just the the garment of Saul. And he says this, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing it's the Lord's anointed. David was convicted he shouldn't take revenge. 25. Remember, there was a man named Nabal, which means fool. Beautiful wife named Abigail. And David had been out in the fields guarding Nabal's flock. And David said, listen, my men are hungry. Could you give us something to eat? And Nabal, being a fool, told him there's no way that's going to happen. Remember the story. David and his men strap on their swords. And David said, as God is witness, there will not be one male left by the time I get through with this man's household. And as he's coming in his vengeance to take care of Nabal, Abigail quickly pulls together a meal, runs out there and says, please don't do this thing. Abigail turned him away from seeking vengeance. 1 Samuel 25, 33 
Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and avenging myself on my hand, my own hand. Then remember chapter 26. They're all sleeping and Saul and Abishai go into the camp of Saul. And Abishai's plan is I'm going to pin him. Just tell me when. I'll pin him. Just tell me. I can't wait to do this. David says, no, just take his sword. And then remember the story David told Saul. I spared your life today. I saw it as precious. May God be merciful to me and spare my life. David did not avenge himself. Matter of fact, God was so careful to keep him from doing this. If you'll remember, at the very end of 1 Samuel, David wants to go to war with the Philistines against Israel. He's ready to go to war. And one of the kings of the Philistines says, "Ah, This guy used to be, (laughs) this guy, I remember him, he was at the battle with Goliath. And that didn't go real well. We don't want him in this battle. And then there were the Amalekites who came and just ransacked his village. And he got distracted with that, so he went off. That battle he was going to go into ended up being the battle that Saul and Jonathan and all of, all of Saul's sons died. And it would have been very easy for David to have been blamed of fighting with the Philistines for Saul's death. But God kept him free of that. So don't be surprised when people do evil to you for their own sinful purposes. Remember, it's not your place to take revenge. Leave it in God's hands. God can fully take care of the situation, either in this life or in the next. So so Joseph walked by faith as he dealt with his brothers. And then point three, trust God and his good sovereignty. Trust him and his goodness and his sovereignty, which turns everything that happens to you from your good to the advancement of the kingdom and Christ's glory. God has a plan in which there are, there's at least three objectives. One is, he wants you to become more like Christ. Two, he wants to advance his kingdom. And three, he wants Christ to be lifted up and glorified. That's his motivation for everything he does in his purposes and plans. And so God uses his goodness and his sovereignty to take things that are evil and work them out for good. Now, our definition of good is not the same as God's. Here's what our definition looks like. We define good as the addition and multiplication of many good things. Financial security, peaceful relationships, Romantic relationships, acceptance, comfort, situational happiness, success at work, and good also involves some subtraction. 
taking away those not-so-good things like pain and discomfort and grief and uncertainty and difficult circumstances and difficult people. That's how we define good, one pastor said, and I agree with it. This is our idea of good. Lots of blessing, take away all the pain. That's how we define it. God does not define it that way. God's plan is this. He is good. He's all-powerful. He reigns. And he has seen fit to create a world in which there is sin and death because of man's rebellion. But he's also seen fit to rescue a people for himself. And in that rescue, God is purposed to use everything in their lives to fashion them, to shape them, to chip away at them like an artist with a block of marble, to make them more like himself, more like their Savior. And I would add to this quote, and through those trials to advance his kingdom for the glory of God. So we have a powerful God who can take even the most horrible things and turn them for our good. Calvin said there's two governments. There's the invisible government of God and there's the visible government of what goes on here on this earth. And he says one of those has a limited power to accomplish the intention of his will, meaning what happens on earth, there's a limited ability to accomplish that purpose. But the other, meaning God, exercises unlimited power so that he alone possesses true sovereignty. He created the world and holds the universe by his power, who spoke and the created order came into being, exercises a wiser and more powerful government than all others combined. We have to hang on to that, friends. No matter what we see in Washington or in our state government or in our churches or in our families or in our culture, we have to hang on to the fact that God, in his government, is more powerful and that he will accomplish his purposes and that he will even take the evil that has happened to us and use that for our good, the expansion of his kingdom and the glory of Christ. If not, we will be tossed all around by the circumstances of life. And the only good days we have are when all the circumstances line up to where we call it a good day. Joseph had a lot of bad days. Joseph had 13 years of bad days. Calvin goes on, God's purpose for those redeemed by Christ is so established and his power so at work in the details of their lives that whatever poison Satan produces, God turns it into medicine for his elect. There's some pretty wicked stuff out there. But our God's powerful. He's sovereign. He's good. He allows sin. He allows death. 
He allows men to rebel. He allows nations to rise and fall. He allows allows people to experience the full weight of their sin. But don't forget he's in control. He is in control. God's definition of good is using events to make us more like Christ, to expand God's kingdom, and to bring Christ's glory. If he allowed his son to be crucified. Don't think he won't allow you to suffer at the hands of evil men in bad circumstances. He's not promised to shield us from everything. Consider the bee, Sproul says in his book, The Invisible Hand. In its first stage of life or of development, it is in a hexagonal, I better be able to say that as being a math teacher, hexagonal cell wherein enough honey is stored for it to eat until it reaches maturity. The honey and the bee are sealed with a capsule of wax. Once the honey is gone, it's time for the bee to come out of the cell. The wrestling, the struggle, the strain the bee has to do to get out is apparently quite something. It has to remove the wax cap, which is no easy task, and then it has to climb out of the cell, which is now in a tight prison. We may be inclined to have pity on the struggling bee, and we may wonder why it has to have such a a rough time. Yet in the agony of the exit, the bee rubs off the membrane that hide, that has hidden its wings. Once out of the cell and rid of the membrane, the bee is able to fly. What good is there in the struggle? The bee will not see that until afterward. He may even question the necessity for the struggle and the agony, but ultimately it is for his good. So also is human life. All sorts of painful things may happen to us. Our hearts may be broken a thousand times in this world and our bodies racked with pain. But these things are part of the refiner's fire, the crucible of the kingdom of God. Friends, in God's economy, he has ordained that his children will trust him in suffering. He tells us that in Philippians 1.29, For it's been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We've been called and saved, and we've been called to suffer. Since you know I'm in the same conflict, Paul said, look what I'm going through. I'm going through all kinds of suffering. You've been called by the same God to go through the same things. 2 Timothy 1.12 Paul talks about suffering. He says, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. No matter what the struggle, no matter what prison, no matter what the threat, Paul trusted God to the point they took his life. And he was confident that death to him meant gain. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. If you're, in the, if you're going through suffering right now, 
Turn your eyes to Jesus. Entrust your soul to him. You don't have a guarantee of which way it's going to go. We don't know that. In God's economy, God has ordained that some of his children will be martyred for Christ's cause. Now, I'm sure Domingo Pacheco was grateful he didn't die in that plane. And I'm sure he's grateful for the flat tire. And we love the story of Joseph because it ends well, right? After all the trial, he has 55 years with his family and watches his kids grow old. And he sits on the front porch in Egypt rocking and watching his kids grow old. Doesn't always happen. Not in God's economy. Christ himself was struck down at the age of, in his 30s. Remember Stephen? A flaming witness for Christ. And remember how they took him and they stoned him. And he went out like a, like a blaze of glory as he saw Christ standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opening. This is in um, Acts, I think, 8, 54. I see heavens opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And then the Bible has this little statement. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul watched their garments. Saul was in charge of this situation. And Saul watches Stephen die. In the next chapter, we see that Jesus reaches out and changes Saul forever. In Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the scripture says the following. Let's turn there if we can quickly. Time is running out. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So here's a bunch of souls underneath the throne who have died because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're crying out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What? God has a number of people who have been set aside to die for the glory of Christ. And judgment's not going to take place until that number is complete. 
Does that fit into our idea of following Jesus? Does it fit into our idea of following Jesus when we have this wonderful rosy picture of how life should be for us? We've first been told that we've been called not only to believe, but also to what? Suffer. Okay, I think I heard that right. And now, in Revelation, we're told that God has set aside a number of saints who will, like Stephen, proclaim Christ's glory as they are killed. Joseph's situation doesn't look so bad now anymore, does it? He had betrayal. He was in prison. I mean, he was a slave. He was in prison. He was falsely accused. But in the end, he had a happy ending and he lived happily ever after. God is good, God is sovereign. We must hold on to that. When come what may, we may have to lay our life down for him. Paul was willing to do it. Peter was willing to do it. The disciples did it. Saints down through the ages are doing it. Saints today on the other part of the globe are dying because they hold to the name of Jesus. How do you do that? In America, we need to get tougher. We need to have some practices where people are beating us up. And we're getting toughened up. In 1831, two men were aboard the HMS Beagle, both believing in the sovereign God who created the world. Five years later, at the end of that journey, Captain Robert Fitzroy considered himself a follower of Christ. The, only, the other passenger, Charles Darwin, had abandoned his faith and was about to publish his theory of evolution. After this publication, Fitzroy became very distraught, very discouraged. He had been a very brilliant navigator. Um, he had a very productive career. He was a governor of New Zealand. But he blamed himself for being on the same ship and navigating Charles Darwin to the, to the Galapagos Islands and the resulting book that was written by Darwin and to watch the devastation across the Christian community of people abandoning their faith. His whole focus became those five years. If he just hadn't done that, if that had just hadn't happened, if we just hadn't gone on that trip, this wouldn't have happened. In 1865, under great emotional pain and depression, he took his life. His focus was on the evil. His focus should have been on Christ. 
His focus was on the evolutionary principles being taught by Darwin. His focus should have been on the God who is loving and sovereign and has control of all things. Friends, today, where is your focus? Is your focus on the one true God who made the heavens and the earth and all that's in them? The one who was able, who was the God of Joseph, who helped him navigate through all the evil that he went through to carry out his God-given purpose. Is that where your focus is? Or is your focus on some event either going on right now or in the past that was very painful and you just can't let it go? Don't be like Fitzroy who took his own life because he focused on the evil that he, that he saw, that he blamed himself for. Some of us here have committed sins that we are desperately ashamed of. And even though we hear every Sunday that Jesus forgives, come to Christ for forgiveness, we just can't let it go. We just beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up. And we can't believe that God would forgive. The death of Christ is powerful enough to forgive whatever it is you've done. He is a great and righteous and mighty Savior. There's only one focus for our lives that will help us to run this race. And that is the risen Christ, resurrected in all his glory. We can focus on a lot of other things. We can focus on the state of our country. We can focus on our own failures. We can focus on the evil that's been done to us. We can focus on all the tragedies that have come into our life. That will take you to the grave. God and his spirit living in you is powerful enough to carry you all the way to the finish line for his glory, for his kingdom, for your good. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Joseph was triumphant, not because he was Joseph, but because his God was God. A loving and sovereign Lord who walked with him through all that he went through. Do you know Christ? Do you know him? He's the only one worthy of your affection. He's the only one worthy of your attention. He's the only one worthy of your dependence. And he will sort everything out. You're not going to be able to sort it out. Trust him. Let him be judge. You don't want to be judge. 
Your job is to run. Run. Run the race he's called you to run. Proclaiming the name of Christ to all people. Being conformed to his image. Enjoying the fellowship of the saints. And whatever comes in every shape or form. To know that you have all that you need. To get all the way to glory. Joseph ends, and Jacob ends their life wanting to have their bones taken back to Israel. That's peculiar. No, it's not. They knew God had made promises to them, and even as they're closing their eyes in death, they're making provision for the future. They're believing God for the future. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you. For this wonderful story of your kindness toward Joseph. Twelve chapters. Thank you for giving us a picture of what it means to be a faithful servant. Thank you for giving us a picture of your faithfulness to Joseph. Thank you for giving us a picture of Christ. Father, I pray that you do only what you can do in each of our hearts. That you would cause us not to be surprised when people do evil against us. That we would not set ourselves up as judge and spend the rest of our life trying to get revenge. But that our focus would be on you. The one true God who takes evil and turns it to good. And causes us to become like Christ. To help in the expansion of your kingdom. And and to bring people and point people to the glory of Christ. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to run the race. In the power of the Holy Spirit. With the encouragement of your saints. With the prodding of your word. And with the call of Christ to follow me. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.